I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Introducing Barker and Stonehouse Garden Furniture. Find inspiration for your outdoor space with our stylish collections of garden furniture and accessories, now with up to 25% off. Visit one of our 11 nationwide stores or find us online at barkerandstonehouse.co.uk. Hello and welcome to our first RHS Gardening Podcast of May. I'm Fiona Davison, Head of Libraries and Exhibitions here at the Royal Horticultural Society. Today we're talking tadpoles and teacups as we go wild about ponds. Plus we'll be celebrating People, Plants and Places with Matthew Biggs as he tells us about his brand new book which explores the illustrious history and exciting future of the RHS. But first let's get off to a practical start with a rummage through some of the gardening questions that you've sent to our advisory team at Wisley. Hello, I'm Lee Hunt, and again we're here to answer your questions. This time I'm joined by Jenny Bowden and Rebecca Mealy. Jackie Colquinn from Essex has written in, Peperomia. I have, I believe, a watermelon peperomia. I love it and want more. How best can I propagate them? Will they thrive in a container with other houseplants? I'm never sure if I can mix succulents, and do they need different soil? Jenny, well, what is a peperomia? A peperomia, a watermelon peperomia, no less. It's a houseplant that comes from sort of jungly kind of conditions. So it would normally be living on the forest floor. So it'd be quite shady, uh, which immediately, I think, answers the question that it probably wouldn't go with succulents. It does have quite a succulenty looking leaf, but it comes from a completely different habitat to real succulents. Therefore, they won't really live together long happily. They like to have a normal houseplant compost is absolutely fine. And you can propagate them quite easily by taking off leaves. And you need to have about two centimetres, which is about an inch of the leaf stem still attached. And you just pop that into multi-purpose compost. Uh, You might add a little bit of grit with it just to help with the drainage so that the leaf is pretty flush with the soil. And it takes about four weeks for that to root. You need to put it in a propagator or in a pot with some bag over the top to keep the humidity in. It takes about four weeks for it to root. And then it takes another four weeks for babies to start to come from the soil next to the stem, which is quite exciting. So it's not the fastest of projects, but it's quite satisfying when it does actually happen to get little baby plants at the bases. So they're a lot of fun peperomias. They're pretty plants, um, but they do like slightly less light than, than a succulent. 
Heather Jones's email tells us that she has a paucity of cauliflowers. Each year I fail miserably with collies. They get as big as about a 50p piece, then they stop and wither. What might I be doing wrong? What is the trick? They don't like being stunted at any point. So when you start them off in modules, they don't really like their roots to go round and round the module. So you have to keep potting them on and not letting them get a little bit too tight and contained. Also, them drying out at any point, that again will stunt them and it causes them to do what's known as buttoning. And that's when they become like a size of a button. Temperature can be another thing, um, especially cold temperatures. And then it's nice, even watering. So making sure the soil is also moisture retentive. So you've dug in lots of plenty of organic matter, um, homemade compost, composted manure. But they are notoriously tricky to grow. Roger Dayton was given some garden centre vouchers to buy an Acer at the right time, he was told. What is the best time and how do I choose a good variety and a healthy specimen? I don't know what to look out for as good and bad signs of plant health. And what is the best spot to plant it in for the most vibrant, deep colour? So Acer's definitely best time to plant them is in the autumn, just as they've, they've lost their leaves and they've gone into dormancy, really. So October time. With the plant, you're looking for a really nice, strong main stem and checking out for any forks from where the actual branches split out because they are prone to splitting. I had a, an email in from the other day and this poor person had had an ace that had completely split down the middle and, and I had to tell them the sad news that they had to replace it because um, it wasn't going to be any good. It's not such a bad thing to actually knock it out of its pot in the garden centre and just make sure that uh, it's not been in that pot for far too long because... If you do buy one that's been pot-bound, as it's called, the roots can continue to circle and it can strangle itself and just never, ever establish any crossing branches. That's not such a good thing. And it's actually quite a good idea to plant aces or to plant any tree at the smallest size you can. Don't feel that you have to get something that's 8, 9, 10 foot tall. If it's just 18 inches, that means that it has all the time to actually settle into its home from a very early age and, and sort of it can actually overtake something that's been planted at a larger size. Uh, Realising that the best time, as Becky points out, has probably passed. However, you can plant these really right through the, the year. So any time during the winter, as long as the ground's not waterlogged or frozen, you can still get on and do this. And there's not going to be much difference. And even if you did have to buy them in the summer, if you kept them very well watered when they went in, it would be okay. So th this is the funny thing, isn't it, where um, the right time and the practical time are sometimes two different things. L. Drayton from Leighton Buzzard. Do I need special compost to divide and pot on my baby aloe veras? Or can I use normal potting compost? The short answer really is use cactus compost. Uh, you can buy it ready-made. You need a nice well-drained compost for the aloes. You can make it yourself. You can use John Innes, probably number two compost, which is a loam-based compost. And then you could mix probably up to a third by volume of grit and that will do the job just as well 
I think it depends on how many, what quantity. So if you've got a lot of house plants to, you know, repot, it's probably, you can do it in, in a large bag. But if you just got one or two aloe veras to do, there's little bags that you can pick yep. up from the garden centre are perfect. Quite ready mixed. Having said that, some of the rubbish I've seen aloe veras growing in over the years, both in, in this country when you're on holiday, kind of makes you realise as long as you don't get it too soggy, they'll just about survive in anything. So if you want really good things, then specialist compost, if you're kind of happy to survive, then you can probably grow them in just about anything. Claire Thomas has emailed us. I've just moved into a house with a conservatory. A first for me. We are northeast facing in Hastings. What could I grow in it? Easy care plants, please. We have two kids, five and seven, and a dog. Well, I think the first thing to consider as well is... Are you going to use it like a living room or is it going to be a plant conservatory, sort of dedicated to plants? The reason for asking that question is you get to grow a wider range if it's just for plants because you can make the humidity higher. But it's not always very good for your soft furnishing. So that's why the two things might be different. And therefore you slide back into kind of more like house plants that are used as decorative features. I'm going on the latter, so I'm thinking about tough plants, and because it's northeast facing, it's going to get good light, but not lots of huge amounts of direct sunlight as well, so not too warm, which is often quite a good thing for conservatories. First thing I'm going to choose is plumbago. Now, that's something you can grow on a little framework, so a little mini trellis that you can buy ready to go, or some canes. And it'll make a small climber. So we're, we're talking up to sort of four or five foot over time. And it has sky blue flowers and bright green leaves. So it's great against a wall. Or you can make a more of a pyramid style if you want to make it more of a central feature. Other things that, again, I've learned from our Wisley Glass House here, but Plectranthus, quite smelly leaves, quite interesting aromatic smells. And as you go into late autumn, the different types have pink and purple blue flowers where they've got top and bottom lips so kind of big claw-like shapes making them very dramatic clusters and again you can get golden cream and green and even gray forms so you can have quite lots of fun just within that one group also one thing to be aware of is nighttime temperatures because conservatories can dip down at night time so being making sure that what you choose is quite happy at the temperatures that it dips down to at night because a lot of people get caught out especially with things like growing oranges oranges don't like to go below 10 really of a night time in the winter and that can make them abort their flowers but it's quite fun to have an orange maybe to have an avocado as well because that's quite fun for the, maybe the children to try and grow it's probably yeah. the great, it's probably the jump in temperatures because citrus grow in the Mediterranean, they'll drop down to four or five. But the thing is in a conservatory, it if you don't open the windows, even in the winter, if you get a sunny day and all that glass, it could be up to 25, which you wouldn't get in the Mediterranean during the day. So it's the discrepancy between the two, it's the extremes that probably are the problem but if you've got good ventilation and as lee says you're using the conservatory to concentrate on the plants rather than the people then you might have the windows open and then you've got less of a jump in temperature so that would growing citrus would be wonderful a cheap maximum minimum thermometer is always a good bit of kit to put in a conservatory because it'll just give you that indication the lowest temperatures and the highest really for the kind of plants we're talking about we need a minimum of about seven degrees c 
but you might therefore still find that you're opening the vents, as you say, a bit in the day, just to keep the air moving. And you can get automatic vents as well if you're finding that you haven't got the time, the inclination, or you're not there because you're out at work. So there are ways of making it easier. I'd also be careful if your dog is very interested in eating plants. It's always good to check that the plant is not you know, toxic to dogs because um, the, the, there's a lot of house plants that are. It depends on the dogs. Not all dogs like to eat house plants. And on our potentially harmful plants list on our website, there's the things that are harmful to people, but there are links through to the Dogs Trust for the things that are harmful to dogs as well. The RHS Gardening Advice Team. You can find links to more information about the topics discussed and contact details for the advice team on our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. As I speak, many listeners will be preparing to go to this year's RHS Malvern Spring Festival. It starts today and runs until the 12th of May. Plant trolleys, show guides, umbrellas, sun cream, you never know quite what the weather will do, but the plants and displays are always worth it. Then just a couple of weeks later, it's Chelsea. Then Chatsworth Flower Show, hot on its heels in early June. Set against the magnificent backdrop of Chatsworth House, it's hard to believe that the Chatsworth Flower Show is only three years old. The show runs from the 5th to the 9th of June and tickets are on sale now on the RHS website. Now, are you wild about gardens? We are. And this year we're focusing on ponds, how to create and maintain them and encourage the rich diversity of life that they support. Diminishing numbers of ponds in the countryside means that a wide range of species that depend on these natural resources are under threat. But by taking care of existing ponds and creating new ones, we can protect this vital aquatic network and its wildlife. Hello, I'm Bernard Boardman. I work for the edibles team at Wisley, but I spent many of my earlier years here looking after the water lilies and the ponds round about on seven acres. I just love water. I've always fished. I come from a family of fishermen, so we've always been near ponds and water and rivers and canals. That's really where the interest came from. I don't want to leave that alone, so I love growing fruit but I'm very interested in ponds. And now is a great time to build a new pond. It's also a fantastic time of year if you've already got a pond that's established because one of the first places you start to see spring moving is in and around the pond. You'll see bees coming out of hibernation, looking for a a quick drink of water. You'll see frogs beginning to emerge. And indeed, this year we've had a very mild winter and there's been frogs born about. Amphibians are beginning to, to breed, so be gentle if you've still got dead matter to remove but it is most important that you do get rid of this uh, 
dead material because it will decompose in the pond and raise the nutrient levels, which is what you're really trying to avoid. You don't want too much leaf litter building up because the nitrogen levels will rise and then you'll begin to have problems with blanket weed, which none of us like. Talked about um, amphibians inhabiting your pond and flying insects, but don't forget that mammals will uh, visit your pond as well, especially hedgehogs. They are actually quite good at swimming but they do struggle if they can't get out. So make sure that your ponds have got at least one sloping side. Could be grass or planting coming down, so long as it's something that hasn't got a deep lip so that anything that does fall in can get out quite easily. I have seen hedgehogs swimming quite happily, but they do struggle to get out of the water once they're in. I talked about uh, now being a good time to put new ponds in. It's always a good time to build ponds. But remember that they need to be filled with rainwater wherever possible. You can fill them with tap water, but you have to leave them a while just to let all the gases settle down. If you can link them up to some sort of water butt overflow, it's great because they'll always have a a supply whenever the water butt's full it can overflow into the pond um, that would really help it adds a bit of fresh water without adding lots of nutrient and is by far and away the best water to put in so my big tip is uh, hook your water butts up to your pond so that uh, they get a nice clean nutrient free dose of water You can find resources and information for wildlife lovers of all ages on the Wild About Gardens website. Links are on our podcast pages. Well, that's almost all for today. But before we go, here's Matthew Biggs, gardener, broadcaster and writer, to tell us about his new book, which is out now. Its subject is, well, it's us. The reason why I'm excited about this book called uh, The RHS A Nation in Bloom, The Plants, People and Places of the RHS, is because it tells you about the transition of the RHS from a learned, upper-class academic society, which it was for many years, to how it is today, which is much more outward-looking, providing a service, the service of horticulture, which has changed lives to so many people. So that's the excitement of it. It's recording a metamorphosis, still a great horticultural institution, but appealing to more people on different levels. And that's really part of their charitable remit today. When the society was established in 1804, there was a meeting of what was called the Horticultural Society. Uh, and William Townsend Ayton, the botanist and gardener to George III, plus Sir Joseph Banks, who was the first unofficial director of Kew, and uh, seven men met to discuss the establishment for the purpose of instituting a society for the improvement of horticulture. And the idea was that they would 
discuss horticulture with one another, that they would learn from another and try and develop horticulture as best they can. And for many, many years, it was the Society for Horticulture as far as traditional gardening was concerned. Many of the landowners uh, were members. If you had rhododendrons and camellias and a great estate gardener and employed staff and loved your plants because all of them loved their plants. And that is one thing that has been a thread right through the history of the society, that those on the committees, those in uh, positions of authority, the decision makers have loved their plants and have been joined over the years by many people now from different social groups who just love their plants and it's all about the plants at the uh, the end of the day and if you say to people well what do you know about the royal horticultural society today they will probably say oh chelsea flower show and yes i visited wisley and been up to harlow car and popped into hyde hall but that possibly is all that people know and the interesting thing was that when I was asked to write this book, I thought I knew the RHS. And by the time I'd finished, I realised that I didn't at all. And one of the really interesting stories and exciting stories what was this sort of transformation that occurred uh, when Sue Biggs became the uh, director. And in August 2010, she became the Director General of the RHS and it was her really who began looking at the society and taking the society in a new direction. This realisation that horticulture had so much to offer people, this understanding that horticulture was popular right through the social classes, the fact that Britain in Bloom could improve the environment where people lived and improve the quality of their neighbourhood for the benefit of all. The other thing that was really interesting around about this time, in fact, horticulture was good for health. If you ask a gardener, what does horticulture do for you? They will tell you that it's a wonderful place to go out uh, in amongst nature, slower pace of life, uh, the wind blowing in your face, the fragrance of plants. It's a different experience from sitting in an office and and so people could see the impacts and experience the impact of uh, the softness of a garden and the peace that it brings. The RHS in 2015, they produced a mission and amongst the statements, they wanted to be the world's leading gardening charity by inspiring passion and excellence in the science, art and practice of horticulture. They wanted to inspire, involve, inform, improve, to enrich everyone's life through plants and make the UK a greener and more beautiful place. And then part of the brand mission was to unleash and increase the power of gardening on everyone. So the book in itself is full of wonderful and inspiring pictures. It's full of powerful messages about horticulture, about the RHS today, about the transformation from it just being a little hobby whereby people will potter around and enjoy. And it's not just old people. It's bringing school children in as well. Anyone who's interested in plants, whether you live in an urban area and you're growing houseplants, to those who want to improve their environment and all those things that are essential to the world today. So the book itself will tell you how the RHS has made this transformation. It's a really exciting time for horticulture. It's an incredibly exciting time for those who are interested in plants. And what the book does is document all these changes, tells you about the transformation, 
shares with you the excitement of what's happening within the RHS so that everybody can join this wonderful journey that actually brings plants, gardens and the work of the RHS to the people. Matthew Biggs. His book, RHS, A Nation in Bloom, is available to buy from bookstores and our online shop now. Well, that's it for today's RHS Gardening Podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, from me, Fiona Davison, and all the podcast team, goodbye. Introducing Barker and Stonehouse Garden Furniture. Find inspiration for your outdoor space with our stylish collections of garden furniture and accessories, now with up to 25% off. Visit one of our 11 nationwide stores or find us online at barkerandstonehouse.co.uk. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.